The text of our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 12. And we will read from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. This time I'd like to call our kids forward for their children's sermon. Well, the verses that we just read, they teach us a very important lesson about our attitude toward God and his worship. And I want to explain it in a way that you will understand because it is a very important lesson. Now, there are jobs that, that look normal but can actually be very dangerous. My mom's uncle was a farmer. He worked with tractors and other farm machines his whole life. One day, he did something that wasn't really safe wasn't as careful as he should have been, but he wasn't really worried because he'd done it a million times. He worked around these machines his whole life and never really seriously gotten hurt. But that day something happened. A blade slipped, he slid, and he got a really, really deep cut on his leg. And that blade, as you can imagine, was full of dried mud and cow poop and rust, and the cut got infected which means that the germs made the cut not heal like it should. And the disease spread. Well, when he got to the doctors and they tried to treat him, it was too late. And he had to have both of his legs cut off. If he had had the proper fear and respect for those blades that he should have, he would not have gotten hurt that day. Now, what does this have to do with our Bible lesson? Well, our verses are telling us or teaching us about what the Bible calls the fear of God. Maybe we come to church and we listen to Bible stories, we sing the songs, and we like singing them. And if we're not careful, the things of God will start to become ordinary to us. And we can easily forget how special they are. You probably have clothes or toys that, that were very special to you when you first got them. But now that you've used them a bunch of times, they're just normal, and you forgot that you even have them. 
that special feeling is gone. And our verses remind us of how special the things of God are. We learn this by the way it compares worship in the old times to worship now. We read about Moses and the people of Israel coming to a mountain that was called Sinai. And this is where God called Moses to the top to give him the Ten Commandments. God showed his power at that mountain. There was fire and smoke on the mountain. There was thunder and lightning. The ground shook. There was the sound of trumpets blasting and a loud voice booming down from the mountain. Moses talked with God all the time, but even he was scared. Our verses tell us that Moses was shaking with fear. And when we worship God now, we, we say some prayers, we sing some songs, listen to Bible readings in a sermon, and it can start to feel normal and ordinary, and we can forget how great the power of God is. We can forget that God is king, that God is the creator, and if we're not careful, we can tr start treating God's worship with disrespect. So our verses tell us that what we come to when we come to church, it's not just a mountain with thunder and lightning, fire and smoke. We come before the God who is in heaven. All the people of God who have already lived and died, they're all in, God, in heaven worshiping God. And when we come to worship, we're joining with them. We're joining all the angels of God and praising him. And we're able to do this because Jesus died for our sins. Otherwise, Coming to worship God the way we do would cost us our lives. In our verses, we learn that, that when God in his power was on that mountain, God told Moses, if anyone touches the mountain, even an animal, it has to be killed. No one can come to God and worship him unless they come in the way that God says. And this is not because God is mean, but because God is so holy. And we are so sinful. Even holy beings like angels hide their faces because they cannot look at God's holiness. And we must always remember this. Remember to be respectful of God's house. Remember that the Bible is not just some book with nice stories in it. The Bible is really and truly the actual word of God. God has given to us his own very words. In the old worship, men offered lambs as a picture of how Jesus would die for his people's sins. Now, when we worship, we worship without those sacrifices because Jesus has already died for our sins. If God's people had to be careful in the old days to worship God exactly as he told them to, how much more now? That we are not living in the days of sacrifices, which were just promises that Jesus would come. We're living in the days when those promises have all been kept. Jesus has come. So I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we will learn a lot more about this. And we'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who did the, spe who did the old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken to us in these last days by thy Son. Speak to us now in thy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. 
May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake. Amen. The bulk of this epistle is taken up in explaining the true meaning of the Old Testament system of worship. That system was elaborate, and often it was quite beautiful. But it was all a foreshadowing. It was destined to be fulfilled and therefore replaced. And what fulfills it, by definition, must be far, far greater. Now imagine that I owe you, you like thinking of this, imagine that I owe you $2,000. And I give you a promissory note. And it's a, an 11 by 14 parchment with ornate handwritten calligraphy and gold leaf edging. It's beautiful. It looks gorgeous, but that IOU is worth nothing more than the paper. And when I pay you back the 2000 I could easily stuff a wad of dirty 20s in your hand. And that's what I actually owe you. As ugly and ordinary as that wad of bills may be, it's worth more than the beautiful promissory note. You couldn't even buy a cup of coffee with that thing. Now, that's not the best analogy, granted. But it is a fair picture of the relationship between the forms of worship of the Old and New Testaments. Mind you, God doesn't owe us anything. The New Testament is the fulfillment of his promises, not the payment of a debt. But the imagery of the analogy stands. All the elaborate rituals and symbolism of the Old Testament were like that fancy IOU. See, when Jesus came, born in an animal stall, laid in a feeding trough, raised by a carpenter, followed by smelly fishermen, betrayed by his treasurer, forsaken by his followers, sold by the Jews into the hands of the Romans to be crucified, he did not present a striking, beautiful image like all the Old Testament imagery. He was like that wad of worn-out 20s compared to the beautiful parchment. But guess what? He is of infinitely more value. His life, death, and resurrection actually accomplished what all the dazzling rituals of the Old Testament only depicted by way of symbolism. Now that gets us to the doctrine of our text this morning, namely, that the new administration of the covenant supersedes the old. And our text gives us three foundational truths which will serve as our outline. Number one, no more shadows. Number two, now it's substance. And number three, it is more fearsome. In other words, it demands more reverence. No more shadows. The first point is that we are no longer dealing with types that foreshadow a future work of Christ. Let's reread verses 18 through 21 again. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. What was commanded? And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Now Paul is making two very specific points 
First, he is showing that what we have now in Christ is superior to anything possessed by the Old Testament saints. And secondly, he is building up to what we'll take as the third point of our sermon, that what we have now in Christ demands more respect and reverence. Everything in the Old Testament was a shadow. Now, we've spent a lot of time in this sermon series elaborating on this fact. The tabernacle, and then later the temple. The offices of prophet, priest, and king. The sacrifices, the dietary rules, the, the holidays, the civil codes. Indeed, even Israel itself were all mere shadow. None of it was intended to be the focus. In chapter 11, we get a big list of all the great heroes of the Old Testament. And then chapter 12 tells us that they are mere participants in the same race we're in. And that what we and they both should focus our attention on is Jesus. Now, because it's kind of a hot issue and because it represents all of the lesser foreshadowing elements of the Old Testament, I'm going to handle just the big one, Israel. In order to handle this subject, I want to begin by repeating something that I said several months ago in this series. Namely, that every time this epistle needs to address doctrinal or pastoral practical concerns among Christians, the Holy Spirit appeals to Israel's history. In other words, in order to apply New Testament doctrine, God uses Old Testament history. And that tells us something incredibly important. There is no continuity between Old Testament Israel and the modern state of Israel founded in 1948. If we read the Bible that way, we're reading it wrong and we're rejecting God's very own method of applying the practical lessons of the past to the doctrinal concerns of the present. So let me repeat. There's no continuity between Old Testament Israel and the modern state of Israel founded in 1948. The line of continuity runs from Christ signified and preached under the types and shadows of the Old Testament to Christ revealed and proclaimed in the preaching of the church in the New Testament. And therefore, the chosen people of God are the elect of every nation, those whom God has eternally ordained to salvation. The kingdom of Israel, as it's recorded in the Old Testament, was the prophetic depiction of the church prior to Christ's first coming. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here because I really want to camp down on the third point since I see it as the main focus of the text. Nevertheless, we'll present some of the most pertinent biblical proof of this assertion. So God says to Israel in Exodus 19.6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When Christ came, he was rejected by Israel as the Messiah, as the Christ, and therefore they forfeited the blessings of God's covenant and now live under the negative sanctions of the broken covenant. And therefore this promise belongs to the church because the church receives Jesus as the Christ. That's why Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul handles this subject extensively in his various epistles. For instance, in Romans 2, 
verses two, uh, 28 through 29, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In Romans 9, 6, Paul writes, Not all Israel is of Israel. In other words, not every single biological descendant of Abraham is a child of God according to the promise. God's sovereign election distinguished between Jacob and Esau before they were even born. And in our text last week, unbelieving descendants of Jacob, Paul called them Esau. In Galatians, Paul tells the recipients of his epistle, who, by the way, are ethnic Greek believers in Jesus, that they, they are the offspring of Abraham referred to in God's promise. And that statement leads Paul to elaborate the relationship between Israel and the church right there in the first century, while there was still some overlap between the two. In Galatians 4, Paul likens unbelieving Jews to Ishmael, the illegitimate son of Abraham by Hagar. Paul essentially says, you either live by the law or you live by the gospel. The law is like Sinai and the gospel is like the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, that's significant, isn't it? Because our text says the same thing. If you try to get to God by law keeping, by your own works, by legalistic adherence to the rules, you are a spiritual child of the slave girl Hagar. You are not a free child of God. You are born into bondage. If you come to God through the provisions of the gospel, that Christ has provided all righteousness for you, that Christ has borne your guilt and died your death, then you are a true offspring of Abraham according to the promise. You are born into the liberty of the sons of God. Now what does this mean for modern members of the Jewish race? It means that they can still be part of God's chosen people if they submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Since Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises, and since Jesus is the head of his church, and the church is all those who believe on him in all places and in all ages, then only those who, like our heroes in Hebrews 11, who were looking unto Jesus and seeing him afar off. Only they are members of his people. Only they are his chosen people, and they are chosen not because they believe on him, but they believe on him because they are chosen. The bottom line is that the church is God's people. The church didn't replace God's old people. God only has one people, and the church is the fulfillment of it. So it includes the Old Testament saints. If the modern nation of Israel were to suddenly disappear, cease to exist today, it should not upset your faith the least bit. Because in Christ, we come to something far superior to anything presented to us in the Old Testament because we're no longer dealing with types and shadows. And that leads us to our second point. You have come to the substance as our text says, Jesus' blood is better than all the Old Testament sacrificial blood. Let's reread verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, 
to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The superiority of the New Testament administration is that it is a fulfilled administration. But more importantly than that, not only in its significance, it is spiritual. Not only in its significance, because even the Old Testament was, but also it is spiritual in its presentation. That's why New Testament worship is so much simpler. We don't require altars and incense and tables and elaborately uh, embroidered tapestries and bells and candles and all sorts of extra things and priests with purple and pink and blue robes. A beautifully designed parchment with calligraphy and gold leaf edges might look prettier than a dirty wad of 20s, but the money is far more valuable. Think of a Sacraments, for instance. Jesus replaced a bloody surgical procedure, which left a permanent scar and took a couple of weeks to completely heal from, and he replaced it with a simple, unattractive sprinkling with water. Think of the elaborate Passover ritual. It entailed finding a lamb that fit the criteria, slitting its throat, catching its blood in a basin, and then using branches of a specific plant as a paintbrush, you were to paint some blood on the doorframe of your house. The lamb was to be roasted whole. It was not to be butchered. No bones could be broken. And then you were to eat that meal, standing up at the table, and dressed as if you were headed out the door. And Jesus took all that and replaced it with a bite of bread and a sip of wine. To the person who is unregenerate, an unbeliever, true New Testament worship is ugly and unattractive. But we worship God in spirit and truth. We don't worship Him in flesh and in falsehood. We don't prefer shadow over substance. But the substance of the New Testament religion is spiritual. It is not carnal. Our text says, we have not come to a mountain that may be touched We've come to something spiritual. Worship that is intended to appeal to our senses, that aims to arouse certain feelings, that suits our emotional desires. This is not the worship of God. It is idol worship. You may be worshiping yourself. You may be worshiping the self-pleasing rush of emotions. Who knows? But one thing is sure. You aren't worshiping God. God's worship it's boring in the eyes of the flesh because it is spiritual in its nature. If when we come to worship, we have to be strung along with a lot of sensory stimuli, whatever that may be, our worship is not spiritual worship. Now, we may think we're worshiping God, but we're worshiping Him in the manner that the heathen worship their idols. And can there be anything more insulting to God than to treat Him like an idol? And that brings us to our third point, that the fulfillment demands more respect. Let's reread verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, 
Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The revelation of God in the New Testament demands more seriousness and respect than that of the Old Testament because of its spiritual character. The New Testament should incite more fear of God. Let's return to something that we, we kind of glanced at in passing earlier. When Moses and Israel were at Mount Sinai to receive the law, it was a frightening ordeal. Exodus records, as we read earlier in the chapter, that Moses was terrified. The glory of God was so overwhelming that even Moses trembled. We read in Exodus 33 how Moses asked to see God's glory. And in verse 20, God says to him, You cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. In number 17, some of the Israelites crossed the line. There were people who were not appointed as priests who assumed that they had the right to perform priestly duties. Now we have noted this before, that this was an intrusion into Christ's office because God had ordained that the priesthood of Christ be represented in the Old Testament church only by Aaron and his direct descendants. When God vindicated the residence of Christ's priestly office within the ministry of Abraham and his sons, Israel cried out in number 17, Surely we die, we die, we all perish. Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, commands us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In Psalm 119, verse 120, David declares, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. If you were to look up the word fear in the Bible, you'll find three things. One, it's used a lot. Two, in the vast majority of instances, it's used in reference to the proper attitude towards God. And thirdly, in several cases, it's used of the unbelieving world's attitude toward the church. And even then, it's a response to God's work on their behalf. Now, it is true that the Bible often commands us to fear not. But when it does so, the context shows that what we are not to fear are the plots and plans of God's enemies. We are not to fear mortal man. We are not to fear any created thing because God sovereignly governs all things for his own sovereign, glorious purposes. But the Bible nowhere commands us not to be afraid of God. It everywhere commands us to fear God. Fearing God requires that you have a right concept of who he is and who you are. We must have a clear concept of the nature of God's kingdom and our place within it. The kingdom of God is just that. It is a kingdom. 
The kingdom of God is not a democracy where everyone from king to beggar is equal. It is not a society of faceless drones with no recognizable distinctions. God created mankind with various qualities and distinctions. God ordained the existence of various nations and races, and he even marked out the borders and durations of their existence. Now, modern society dislikes distinctions, distinctions such as male and female, uh, slave and free, king and subject, black or white, rich or poor. But God created these distinctions, and so ignoring or denying their existence is rebelling against God. True fear of God requires that we don't dare presume to question his rule. We recognize that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. God is king, and as such, he doesn't have to answer to us for what we feel are miscarriages of justice within his realm. Our values of equity and justice and fairness, they have all been perverted by the fall. But even in their pristine state, they were never a standard to which God must conform. God will always do right. But not because he conforms to a standard of right, but because his character is that standard. The New Testament, as the fulfillment, demands more respect and reverence than that of which Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. When you read the way that Paul's argument develops, beginning at verse 18 of this chapter, that's as clear as day. He's making the side points, so to speak, that we've taken as the two first points of our sermon. But these points are marshaled in support or in service of this application. Fear God. If the older administration was so solemn and demanded so much reverence and respect, how much more must the new administration demand since it is so much greater? And this idea runs like a golden thread through the whole epistle. Chapter 2 says, For if the word spoken through angels proved, proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 4, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Chapter 7, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Chapter 9 says, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Chapter 10 warns, if anyone, anyone who has rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And chapter 12 ends by declaring, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 ends with a warning that familiarity breeds contempt. And by that, we don't mean the familiarity of meaning uh, intimate knowledge of. 
We should all be familiar with the doctrines of Scripture. We should all know our Bibles inside out. We should all be knowledgeable about the character of God as revealed in Scripture. What we're, be what we're being warned about is treating something special as if it were common and ordinary because we are around it all the time. The fact that we are loved by God, that he has adopted us in Christ as his children, and that he calls us to sing his praises, regularly sit under the preaching of his word and receive the sacraments, that should never make the work of Christ seem ordinary or common. This is why I was harping so much on the unbelieving character of the person who prefers smells and bells over spiritual substance. In our celebration of the Lord's Supper, I point this out every month when I say we are not dealing here with mere signs, but with the realities which these signs represent. Spiritual worship is ugly and boring to unbelievers. It's as simple as that. But even for believers, there is the constant need of vigilance regarding our attitude toward the things of God. It is the easiest thing in the world to get our perspective out of whack and place our moral values above God's. It's the most natural thing in the world for us to fashion God after our own image. When we pray, we say, Our Father. Now, if your notion of Father is someone that you can smart off to, someone whose dirty laundry you enjoy airing everywhere you go, a doddering old fool whose opinion means nothing to you, someone who needs to respect you for who you are and who owes you as much, as much respect as you expect from him, well, when you come to God like that, you're in for a rude awakening. God encourages us to walk with him in the liberty with which Christ has set us free, to always live in the light of his love and to always trust implicitly in his fatherly care. But if you think that means that you treat God like your pal or buddy, you got another thing coming. Has it ever been said of your pal that he is a consuming fire? Is it a fearful thing to fall into the hands of your best buddy? If you worship someone who is less than a consuming fire, into whose hands it is a fearful thing to fall, then you're worshiping a figment of your imagination, an idol. In the old administration of the covenant, you didn't dare just saunter into the temple willy-nilly. Anyone but the high priest who presumed to enter the Holy of Holies, God would kill stone dead. An unconverted man, you know, could be carried along by all the ritualism of the Old Testament and enjoy a sense of mystery in the temple. But he didn't know God. The simplicity of New Testament worship flushes this ungodly attitude out into the open. That's why so many people complain about church being boring. Only someone with true faith can see the glory of Christ in the simple gospel. Christ at his first coming was described like this. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. At his second coming, he's described like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. We don't worship the man upstairs. We don't worship an indulgent grandpa who's always handing out candy or a cosmic bellhop 
or a doting father or a genie from the lamp. We worship a God who is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Let us pray.